Welcome to Market Pulse by Faster Forward at Northern Trust. My name is Mark Mallett, and I'm the head of Platform Strategy and Marketing at Northern Trust Asset Servicing. And I'm joined today by Grant Johnsey, head of Capital Markets Client Solutions Americas. Grant, welcome back. Thanks, Mark. I know we're going to be covering uh, a lot of different topics today, but I thought we'd get started with the equity markets. Yeah, sure. We've uh, continued on a real strong run here. We're up about 20% in four months with real no pauses, no breaks in the market action. Also, this is a very sentiment-driven rally still. We talked about this in the January market pulse. Um, low vol still. We haven't had a down 2% day, although we've gotten close in about a year. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, not a lot of put buying in the market right now. So very bullish sentiment. Uh, not extreme, so not to the point where I would suggest that there's froth in the market, but it's still very bullish sentiment right now. The uh, the sectors that are hottest tech by far, a lot of tech buying still, a lot of uh, flows into the into the tech sector. Uh, communications and uh, industrials are also picking up some assets. Pretty much every other sector is actually uh, uh, losing assets right now. So we're still seeing a really tech-driven large mega cap. Um, now, interestingly, the 20% run, well, we've had this in a short period, a 15, 16-week period, 87% of the time, historically, the market rolls higher. So it's not suggesting that this is the end of the bull market, but it does seem to have some, uh, uh, you know, some overbuying. And, and, of course, the max seven trade is, is, is relatively crowded right now. Well, yeah, speaking of that, what about market breadth? So you, you talked about you know, being sort of a tech-heavy you know, rally. Um, how would you... How do you think about breadth in the overall market? So market breadth is something that we look at to gauge the quality of the markets. It was really popularized in the late 90s and early aughts when the uh, the market didn't have very good breadth as the dot-com boom uh, manifested. And of course, we had a big bubble there that, that pops later. A lot of concern in the early part of 2023 when the yield or the returns of the uh, equity market were really driven by the MAG-7. In the last, I'd say, three, four months of 2023, and even into January of this year, we've seen pretty decent market breadth. So it has improved. It's not as good as I would like to see it yet. But I also think one of the reasons for that is how the economy is playing out relative to the S&P 500. So uh, the S&P 500, if you look at where the earnings are coming from, it's about 50-50 services versus goods is, is where the earnings are coming from. The U.S. economy is actually around, the private economy is about 80-20 services to goods. If you think about where we've been over the last four years since the pandemic, we're right at that four-year period now, the first couple of years we had a, a really good a boom in goods, a lot of goods buying. I mean, if you think back to the stock market, right, Peloton, uh, you know, eBay, Etsy, we're all doing relatively well, a stitch fix, you know, for people who are buying clothes at home, all hot stocks, you know, a stitch fix now was at one point, was a $100 stock, it's $3. You know, there's a lot less goods buying the last two years, and it's been much more service-oriented. So it would make sense that you'd have a little bit less breadth in the market right now, simply because uh, the market right now, uh, the economy is really service-focused. Uh, if you think about uh, you know, eating out, taking vacations, going to, to you know sports events and concerts, very big right now, a lot of demand for services. You're starting to see that change a little bit. The manufacturing sector is starting to show some signs of life. So um, I, I, it's not unusual to see some uh, low breadth right now in certain sectors where the economy is just not favoring those those stocks. I suppose beyond, yeah, just maybe some concerns around, yeah, the, the breadth of of the market. Are there any other concerns that you have out there as it relates to the equity markets? Yeah, the one thing I'm watching right now is credit card delinquency. So there's actually a really good piece 
that our senior senior economist Ryan Boyle just put out, uh, where he went into detail on 90-day delinquency of credit cards, and they are picking up relatively quickly, and it's as high as it's been in 12 years. So really, since the aftermath of the global financial crisis, um, credit card delinquencies, the 90-day uh, late plus delinquencies are are the 12-year high. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on right now. And you uh, you mentioned uh, you know the Mag Seven. So what are you, are you seeing anything change you know related to that trade? So Mag Seven, I think everyone knows the story there. These stocks have beaten the overall market nine out of the last 10 years. The only year they didn't was 2022, and we had a, a, a pretty big sell-off. Uh, if you look at the Mag Seven now, it's no longer the Mag Seven. It's the Mag Three right now. So the Mag Three are Nvidia, which has just had unbelievable earnings growth. Um, if they hit their earnings estimate, they're going to be about a five times earnings growth in the last year. So unbelievable! It's a reason that stock's done so well. Microsoft continues to perform well uh, for a variety of reasons, as does Meta. The other four, if you look at uh, Apple, right? Um, not a weak stock yet, um, but you see Buffett starting to sell that. So you start to see some smart money exit those. Google and Amazon have had um, some headwinds. They're actually flat since about 2021's highs. You've got Stan Drunkenmiller who's starting to sell those. Uh, Tesla is now not even a top seven market cap. So I think it's number nine or 10 right now. So you're starting to see that trade break down some. And, and I think that's also a reason that if, if I had to to you know, look out a little bit, um, it, would, it would probably make sense for the market to take a little bit of a pause here. And I think that would be healthy for the market to consolidate a little bit have a pause uh, before we head higher. And you mentioned NVIDIA yeah, and, and, and all, yeah, certainly the growth that they've had, a lot of it driven by the hype around AI. Yeah, do you think we're facing a sort of an AI mania bubble you know, at this point? No. So in order to have a bubble, you really need three, three elements, right? One, you have to have tech innovation, which we certainly do with AI. You need to have new sources or regions of growth, which again, we, we do right now, if you think about AI and, and how it's potentially going to... Uh, really penetrate all elements of, of the, the economy. And then third, you need easy money. And we don't really have easy money right now. That's a little bit, uh, you can argue that either way, but interest rates uh, and, and quantitative easing uh, would indicate that money is not really easy right now. Um, I, I also look at the, you know, the earnings growth that we've got. Um, the forward earnings, as the analysts uh, estimate right now in the S&P 500, are 14.7% relative to about 12.5% average. A lot of that's coming, you know, from some of the AI-driven uh, stocks and some of the mega cap. Um, and I also look at the the level of uh, forward multiples right now. If we just take the S&P 500, it's about a 2021 forward PE. If you look at the equal weight, right, if you strip out uh, the, the, uh, the impact of the largest stocks, it's probably about a 16 forward PE right now, depending on whose earnings estimates you look at. Those are not indicative of a bubble. The numbers that I would encourage uh, a listener to look at would be if the S&P 500, uh, based upon what the forward earnings are now, hits around 6,000, right, uh, that would be a level that would be concerned as a bubble. So we've got a ways to go before we get to that point. And then on the downside, it seems that the S&P 500 has got resistance around 4,600, you know, 4550 uh, in that ballpark. If it hits below there, then you could see a trend lower. So that sort of range is what I would encourage people over the next few months to look at. It's about 4,600 to 6,000 range. If you see it get into you know, either of those that would be a concern for either a bubble on the high end or potentially a, a bit of a sell-off on the lower end. All right. So that's equity markets. Um, what if we pivot to fixed income? What, how are you? Uh, what's going on? You know, in that part of the market. 
Still pretty good buying. Uh, there was some, uh, you know, uh, selling when when the inflation numbers came out last week higher than the, uh, you know, than, than the consensus. Uh, spreads have actually tightened since the last time we went onto the podcast. So both uh, investment grade and high yield spreads have continued to tighten. Uh, the view from the market is that corporate balance sheets are are very healthy right now, and there's still a lot of uh, attractiveness to the yields. Uh, you know that uh, that you can get in the credit market. So um, continuing to see strong buying there overall, and no signs of any partic- you know particular weakness right now in the uh, in the credit markets. So uh, you know the uh, the yield curve has been inverted since 2022, um, but or well, November 2022. But yeah, you know, we haven't seen a recession, or one doesn't seem to be looming. Is this not a leading indicator anymore? That's a great question. Um, so the inverted yield curve, right, which is when short, uh, short-term short interest rates are higher than longer-term interest rates, is usually an indication of, of a looming recession. Um, the, the, the time period you mentioned, November 22, is when the yield curve first inverted. If you look at the three-month versus the 10-year, uh, some people look at the two-year versus the 10-year. Uh, that's what the traders typically use. Most of the academics use three-month to 10-year to uh, delta to determine uh, inversion. So November of 22, so that was 15 months ago, on average, the inverted yield curve indicates a recession starting 13 months later, but it can be up to three years. The inverted yield curve, as predicted, is a lot of academics would like to boast, eight of the last eight recessions. But the first part of the problem is a couple of the recessions like COVID, right? Yes, the yield curve did invert in 2019, but had we not had COVID, would we have had a recession in 2020? There's a lot of debate there. Um, the first Gulf War, we had um, you know yield curves that inverted slightly before, but it was you know in part higher oil prices in the Gulf War that really pushed the economy into recession in '91. Um, if you actually go back to the mid '60s, there was a period, although very briefly, where the yield curve inverted and there was no recession that followed. So its track record is not quite as good uh, as as many uh, would suggest. Um, I think too the yield curve inversion is something that we talk a lot about. You hear it all the time on CNBC and and in uh, Wall Street Journal. So and and I don't feel like it's a surprise anymore. So when the yield curve starts to invert, what I actually feel like is that a lot of corporate uh, you know C-suite uh, decision makers start to actually start to tamp down on their risk. So if you think about last year, look at all the the companies that were doing really well. I mean Microsoft and. And, uh, you know, some of these big tech companies were laying off, uh, you know, uh, small portions of their workforce, uh, almost as if they were trying to make sure that they were, t- you know, tactically managing their own risk. So I, I think the more it's become a known leading indicator, the more people react to it before the recession really sets as they start to, to peel back. Um, and like I said, private sector balance sheets are actually in really good shape uh, compared to years past and recessions past. And higher wages, um, we've had great wage inflation. I think that's also blunted the impact. Um, but it is something to keep an eye on is the yield curve inversion. There's a reason it's inverted. And so it's still an interesting metric to consider. And I suppose beyond that, do you see you know, any growth slowing? Is that potentially an indicator of, of you know, looming changes in the economy? Yeah. So we've had 23 consecutive months of leading indicators going down. Um, the conference board, which is a research group that's fairly well known, uh, makes recession calls, just abandoned their recession call this week that they've had for quite a time. Um, they're suggesting that we're going to see very low to minimal growth in the second and third quarter, but they no longer see a recession coming. I, I do feel that the 
inverted yield curve is suggestive of slowing growth. So uh, I would uh, heed that as an indicator, not necessarily a recession in this case. But what I would encourage uh, you know listeners to kind of keep an eye on are the uh, respective headwinds and tailwinds. And there's quite a few. So on the tailwind side, you've got a, a strong labor market, which is, I think, going to continue to potentially help wage uh, growth still pretty healthy. You've got um, stable and strong housing. You know, most folks who own a home have seen the the, the valuation that home go up and, and have good equity because the lending standards have been much better since the financial crisis. Uh, immigration, we've actually had uh, more immigration in terms of number of people in this country than ever. Um, and as any economist will tell you, you know, uh, population growth is good for the economy. And I think, as I mentioned, corporate balance sheets and corporate performance is pretty strong right now. So I, I think that that's really good. I think the headwinds is consumer spending. And so I mentioned the credit card delinquencies earlier, uh, the excess savings that a lot of households had from the pandemic through a mix of not spending as much and then the COVID stimulus, 2.1 trillion is now about 600 billion. So a lot of economists believe that that spending will sort of uh, go to zero or that uh, excess savings will go to zero as it's spent over the rest of the year. Um, there's some concerns about the credit uh, market as well, more so with banks and regional banks. It's a combination of the fact that so much money has gone into money market funds because they have higher yields. Banks are having a harder time managing deposits and keeping deposits. And those deposits are very important because that's what feeds capital. That's what gets lent back out. Um, government debt is still a concern. We've talked about that in prior uh, conversations. And then I think the last potential uh, headwind of the economy is the commercial real estate market. So a lot of headwinds there. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, what impact you think that's having on inflation? Because we just saw, you know, that, that CPI was a little bit higher um, in the most recent report. So how do you balance, you know, all, all of those factors? So the inflation report in January was 3.1% annualized. That was higher than the 2.9 estimate. You know, if you look at the components of inflation, the two that were markedly higher was food away from home. So again, we get back to the service thing we talked about earlier. There's still a lot of a lot of people who are going out and spending money at restaurants and away from home. Uh, wage inflation there's also been relatively high. And shelter is the other one. Now, shelter is a stale number, and uh, that was a six percent number for shelter um, up year over year. Uh, that's really a number that's probably 12 months old. The way that the Bureau of, of Labor uh, estimates. Um, you know, uh, inflation in, uh, in rent and or home ownership equivalent rent um, is really a six to 12 months in arrears. So when I look at the inflation numbers right now, I believe that they are at this very moment lower than what the CPI is suggesting. Real-time inflation metrics are, are saying that as well. And and that the, uh, the view of the market that inflation's ticked up a little bit right now is probably not correct. I do feel longer term, we've talked about this, there's a lot of inflationary trends that will continue to be uh, ahead when uh, for inflation. But the fact that shelter and food away were relatively high, everything else seems to be coming in line and lower. Real-time CPIs are much lower. The other area to look at, we've talked about this in the past as well, is energy. Um, energy was down 4.6% year over year. That could change very quickly if any of these you know geopolitical events uh, you know flare up. So that's one thing to keep an eye on. Uh, you mentioned commercial real estate. You know, a lot big impact on that obviously is you know, occupancy rates and you know, folks coming back into the office. I can tell you from my own experience on the train, uh, it feels like a lot more people are coming into the office these days than there were. I don't know what the, the numbers all say, 
but what, what's going on with commercial real estate? How should we be thinking about that? So the, it, it is interesting because anecdotally, it seems like there's a lot more people on the road, a lot more people on the trains coming in, at least to, to the Central Business District of Chicago. Uh, but the numbers suggest differently. So if you look at the top 10 metro markets right now and occupancy, occupancy of uh, office space, it's still just over 50%. Uh, if you look at ridership uh, numbers, like for the uh, metro in New York, for example, it's not at 70% of pre-pandemic. So it's suggestive that there's still a lot of occupancy um, you know, gaps uh, post-pandemic because fewer people are coming into the office. Um, if you the, the best way to gauge the market right now is look at the public REITs, the publicly traded REITs. Um, those on average are down, I would say, somewhere between 15 and 25%. So we've definitely seen some selling uh, of public REITs. Um, what's challenging right now is there's been no forced sales of, of commercial real estate, particularly office space, at least in the U.S. yet. Uh, so there's not a reference point. There's no price discovery right now to understand you know, what should office space be selling at, what should be the capitalization rates in the market right now. That might change pretty quickly here because there are a number of Chinese real estate investors who are starting to sell their uh, foreign uh, investments in real estate, and the numbers don't look good. So uh, I've seen a sale in Toronto, for example, from a Chinese real estate company that's trying to raise liquidity that's about 40% lower than its 21 uh, sale price. Uh, there was one in London that was similar, down 40, 50%, as I recall. So these numbers are a little scary. I haven't seen any of these sales come up in the U.S. yet, but that's something to keep an eye on. If the Chinese uh, investors are trying to sell overseas assets, they might fire sell them. Uh, in the push to get liquidity, and it might really push the the market uh, down for those. There's also about a trillion dollars in refinancing coming up in the back half of 24 and into 25. So I, I feel like there is going to be a shoe to drop here. It's probably going to be limited to regional banks. We saw New York Community Bank Corps, for example, have to write off for their private uh, real estate or their commercial real estate uh, uh, investments. And then the, the other group that I'm a little concerned about are some pension funds. The pension funds invested pretty heavily in, in non-tradable REITs and uh, could also have an outsized impact on, on their investments if those get uh, marked to market. Uh, we saw, for example, uh, a KKR uh, real estate fund, uh, commercial real estate fund, uh, slash its dividends by about 40% recently. So there's probably some mark to markets that need to happen there. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a wild contagion in the economy but certainly some banks and pension funds might be impacted. Well, Grant, this has been a great conversation. I'm sure the audience enjoyed it. I know that I did. I wonder if there's any last points that you wanted to make before we wrap up. Sure. I think two things really quickly. Um, just to follow up, we talked about gold the last podcast. Um, the trends there continue to be relatively interesting. China bought again in January for the 15th consecutive month. Uh, and we're still, we're still seeing some emerging central banks continue to buy. Um, there's a lot of buying right now in China. It's the year of the dragon, and I guess a lot of uh, folks are buying gold trinkets and such as a result. Uh, it's a big, big year. Uh, so we're seeing physical gold in, in the Far East as well do pretty well. Um, U.S. investors have done the opposite. Uh, the, the sales uh, in gold ETFs like GLD and IAU are down about 30% from the peak. Uh, and those sales have continued. So most U.S. investors don't have a lot of exposure to gold. There's been less buying uh, as a, a, for my, the investors that I work with, um, and that's not the case in other parts of the world. So it'd be interesting what happens to gold, and if gold is used to uh, support or uh, you know local currencies like the Chinese or the Russian currencies, um, and potentially to weaponize against fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar. So that's another story that's, that could be playing out there. 
And I think too, uh, we've talked about the energy markets and oil. One thing to keep in mind uh, that a lot of investors don't realize is that oil prices are actually a pretty good leading indicator of recessions. Oil prices right now are fairly low. If um, we see those start to pick up for whatever mix of reasons, whether it's a demand or a supply uh, part of the equation, probably my mind would be more supply uh, driven, that uh, that oftentimes does lead to recession. So uh, oil prices for a variety of reasons, uh, including the impact on the economy and the impact on inflation are worth looking at very benign right now. Um, and then I also would make mention of the natural gas market as well. Natural gas in the US was fell below $2 uh, in our market. That's about a tenth of what Europe has. It's one of the reasons that Germany is struggling a lot because their energy costs are markedly higher than ours. Um, so uh, at, at the time of this recording right now, natural gas pro- uh, prices are $1.70 some odd cents per million BTU. To put that into you know uh, uh, kind of comparison, um, that's the equivalent of about 8.7 gallons of gasoline. So you can literally buy the equivalent energy output uh, in the U.S. natural gas market at a dollar seventy that you would get about 8.7 of, of uh, gallons of gas equivalent uh, energy output. So I think that's also going to be if that stays at that level a, a good tailwind for the economy because natural gas is used in so many commercial applications, steel. Uh, making, um, you know, it's a, a feedstock for nitrogen, for fertilizer, et cetera. So very positive for, for this country, uh, not as positive for Europe, unfortunately. Thanks, Grant. And thank you to our listeners. I look forward to next month's Market Pulse by Faster Forward at Northern Trust Asset Servicing.